if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we offer this time to you. We come before you now and ask you to be here with us this morning. And we trust that you have kept your promise and are here with us. May my words now be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We have come now to the meat of Jesus' moral teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. A couple weeks ago, we read the Beatitudes, with which Jesus opens the sermon, blessed are the poor and the meek, and so on. And then last week, we read his commandment that we be salt and light to the world, unless your Righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus preached. We can never enter the kingdom of heaven. And now he starts to explain and illustrate exactly what that kind of righteousness looks like. And it's, well, it's impossible. If you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let your word be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything more than this comes from the evil one. And Jesus' guidance for achieving this righteousness, his suggestion for how we might actually and successfully do what God has commanded? Simple. Get rid of anything in your life that is causing you to sin, up to and including parts of your own body. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It is better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Better to be maimed in heaven than whole and in hell. What are we to make of Jesus's advice? I remember having a theological conversation with an adult extended family member once, and these verses came up, especially as I recall the idea of lust being the same as adultery. And I remember him saying, well, I believe Jesus said that, but I don't believe it's actually true. And I kind of get it. This is one of those readings after which it makes me feel weird to say, thanks be to God. I mean, what exactly are we thanking God for here? This word of his that threatens us with hell, that suggests we gouge out our eyes, that locates the seat of sin, not in our actions, which would be bad enough, but in our hearts and minds. Yeah, thanks be to God indeed. Thanks a lot. But before we do the human thing and just reject all of this like my relative did, 
There are two truths that I want to begin our time with this morning that I want to draw your attention to here, which will set the stage for our interpretation and be crucially important for us to understand as we attempt to engage and understand this text. The first truth is a truth about location. We, as readers, are beneath Scripture. What I mean when I say that is that it is our duty as Christians to submit ourselves to the Word of God, even when it's difficult, even when it's hard to understand. In other words, we don't get to say, Jesus may have said that, but I don't think it's true. This is the Word of God. And the Word of God is true. It is right. It is holy. And we place ourselves under it, never above it. This is how Almighty God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. And we, therefore, must let it speak and be authoritative in our lives. The second truth is a truth about direction. All of Scripture, by its own witness, points toward the good news of Jesus Christ. So therefore, even this text, a text that is heavy-duty law from beginning to end, even in this text, there is good news. There is a reason to thank God, even for these words that are so difficult for us to hear. These announcements open our eyes to the depths of our real need and thereby show us what Jesus really came to accomplish. So let's begin actually interpreting the passage. And to do so, I want to go back to our reading from the Old Testament. But spoiler alert, we're actually going to use our assigned Old Testament reading to point us to another very similar reading, which will help us see Jesus's point all the more clearly. So in Deuteronomy chapter 30, assigned for today, Moses presents the people gathered outside the promised land with a simple choice. Obey God and live. Flourish in this new land that they will enter or disobey him and die. Now, in the book of Deuteronomy, the people don't get a chance to verbally respond to this choice that Moses has given them. Moses is on a roll here. He's asking rhetorical questions at this point. Because remember, the people don't actually get into the promised land now. They, aren't, they don't get into it until Joshua is ready to lead them in. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Skipping a generation ahead, Joshua 24, we get right before Joshua's death, and he gathers the people of Israel together again at a town called Shechem, much like Moses does in Deuteronomy outside the promised land. And Joshua here echoes his predecessor. This is Joshua 24. Now, therefore, he says, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And then with many, with words that many of you will have heard. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your fathers in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house. 
We will serve the Lord. Same basic thing as Moses, right? Make your choice. Choose God. Choose some idol. Be faithful. Be unfaithful. And here in Joshua, the people actually verbally respond. They say, we would never serve anyone but God. Far be it from us, they say, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Of course, they say, we're going to be faithful to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who brought us out of Egypt. That's their plan and their promise. But before we see how it actually works out for them, let's bring our attention now back to the New Testament keeping in mind those people, the nation of Israel's determination and promise to serve the Lord. So Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He's doing two things in our text from this morning. He's doing sort of one thing on the surface level and one thing down deep. He's telling his people, us, how to resist sin and temptation and to be obedient to God, just like he might be giving advice to the nation gathered around Moses or Joshua. And it sounds like it's going to take a lot of effort and sacrifice, doesn't it? Get rid of that thing in your life that is causing you to stumble. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. This is good practical advice. But Jesus is also doing something much deeper here, much more profound, something way down beneath the surface. And this is the thing that our Old Testament story about Joshua and the people and their pledge of fidelity and what happens next will help us to understand. Jesus is here in the Sermon on the Mount showing his people, us, you and me, just how deep our need really is and just what kind of savior he has set out to be. So first, let's look at what Jesus is doing on the surface. The simple stuff. How can the people be obedient? How can they keep their promise to be faithful? How can you be faithful to God? Well, If something in your life is causing you to be unfaithful, to turn away from God, get rid of it. Simple, right? If something is separating you from God, even if it's something that you love dearly, like an eye or a hand, it must be excised from your life. And this is the thing, right? Jesus is not talking about things that are easy to give up. Chocolate, prestige television. He's talking about things that are part of you. The things that you love. The things to which you give yourself time, money. For those Israelites, it turned out to be idols. The the literal worship of other gods. Our idols take a different shape. Those women at the gym those self-indulgent shopping trips, your cutthroat career ambition, your sarcastic and cutting wit, your view of yourself and your tribe, whatever tribe that is, as superior to others. It's all 
got to go. And why? Because it's threatening to take you to hell. This is what Jesus says. Jesus does not sugarcoat this. And we can't afford to either. It is better for you, he says, to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Jesus here has an eternal perspective. Whatever pleasure, whatever enjoyment you're getting from the illicit things you're participating in here on earth, money, sex, power, whatever, things that turn your eyes away from God, they are not worth the eternal consequence. Now, this world will tell you over and over and in louder and louder voice that feeling happy, accepted, and fulfilled now is worth everything. Jesus says the opposite. It's worth nothing, at least as compared to eternity in perfect communion with God. Anyone who wants to save his life, Jesus teaches in Matthew 16, will lose it. Whoever gives up his life for my sake will keep it. We acknowledge this each week. During the Eucharistic prayer, the prayer I pray on our the prayer I pray on our behalf before we take communion, when we offer and present to our Lord ourselves, our souls and bodies, to be a reasonable, holy, and living sacrifice, we are echoing Jesus' words, giving up our eyes, our hands. And anything else about us, body or soul, that might separate us from him. We turn our eyes away from idols and keep them laser focused on the one true God. And this, I think, is pretty close to the kind of obedience that the people of Israel have in mind when they pledge to Joshua that they're going to be faithful that they will stay true to God. They know it's going to be tough. They just spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. I think they're actually willing to cut off a hand or pluck out an eye. It's what leads them eventually years later to set up all sorts of extra biblical rules in order to help them keep God's law. So for example, God's law says to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so the people, in their zeal, decide that in order to help them keep that law, they're going to set a limit on exactly how many steps they can take on the Sabbath and what kind of work they're allowed to do. It's like those special Sabbath elevators in hospitals that stop on every floor so that observant Jews don't have to do the work of pressing the button. To me, that's kind of like cutting off your hand plucking out your eye. It's going all the way with the hope that with this kind of intensity and attention to detail, faithful obedience will be possible. But there's something wrong. There's a fly in the ointment. If you know anything about the people of Israel, you know that despite this vocal and faithful choice proclaimed to Joshua, they were always being unfaithful to Yahweh. 
constantly worshiping other gods and therefore, in effect, by their actions, choosing death. Remember that that whole first generation died in the wilderness without entering the land of God's promise. And every subsequent generation did pretty much the same thing. It's the story of the Old Testament over and over again, the people breaking their promises to God. What's going on? Why didn't they keep their promise? Well, now Jesus is going to help us understand Israel's failures, even as the story of Israel helps us understand the difficult teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. These two stories are interpreting each other. Jesus here reveals what's going on deep down beneath the surface, what kind of sinners we really are, and what kind of Savior He is going to be. Why all of our hard work, even up to and including the removal of offending body parts, won't actually get the job done. Everyone who looks at a woman with lust Jesus preaches, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now this sounds at first like prime eye-plucking situation. Can't lust with no eyes, right? Oh, wait. It turns out that I can totally lust with no eyes. All I need is my brain and my heart. And I bet the same is true for you. Think of all the sins you can commit with no eyes and no hands. As Jesus confirms in Matthew 15, it is out of the heart that evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander come from the heart. So all of this effort, all of this intensity even going so far as to pluck out eyes and cut off limbs, isn't going to be enough. We can worship idols just fine without hands or eyes. The real source of our problem is much deeper because sin originates in the heart. And Jeremiah, back to Jeremiah, illustrates this perfectly, sending some interpretation back to the New Testament. Indeed, when the people tell Jeremiah that they're going to obey God, Jeremiah says something fascinating. He tells the people, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. This cannot be what they were expecting. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. They say, we choose Yahweh. He says, you're not going to be able to do it. He is a holy God. And when the people insist, Joshua eventually tells them that they are witnesses against themselves for the promise that they've made. Both Moses and Joshua put this choice to the people. Choose God, choose life. Choose idols, choose death. But what Moses and Joshua can't give the people is the ability to follow through on their choice. This is the bad news that Joshua delivers to them at Shechem. You're not going to be able to actually do what you've promised to do. 
the issue is down too deep. It's your heart that's the problem. This is the weakness of the law. It can tell you what to do, but it cannot actually give you the ability to do it. Even cutting off limbs isn't ultimately going to be enough. And so we, like the people of Israel, because our hearts are the problem, sin again and again. We turn again and again to false gods and idols. But what are we to do? If work, if striving, effort, intensity, even the removal of offending body parts doesn't give us the power to produce righteousness in ourselves, how can we get it? Well, now Jesus becomes who we need him to be. Now it's time for good news. What our Savior is really teaching down deep at the heart of things. What kind of sinners we really are and what kind of Savior he's really going to be. Now, This is why Jesus is talking about eye plucking and hand chopping, even though it's not ultimately going to be enough. He's building to something. He's pointing to a truth because the way to obedience is not effort or attention to detail. It's resurrection. But what has to happen before resurrection? Nothing less profound than death. If all sin flows from the heart, which we've already seen, and you're supposed to pluck out or chop off the thing causing you to sin, well, it turns out that Jesus' teaching here is really this. To be obedient, you must carve out your heart. In other words, you must die. You must die because only then can you be raised again. And now the great counterintuitive nature of the gospel. The thing that seems like it's going to lead to death actually leads to life. Surely we think cutting out my heart is going to be the end of my life. And of course, yes, In a certain sense, it will be. It will be the end of a life that has to earn reconciliation with God through obedience. It will be the end of the life that has to earn goodness by effort. That you has to die. But in a much more profound way, a new heart means a new life. It's a beginning. Not an end. Paul talks about this in Romans 7 when he says that he was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and he died. He was doing fine, right? Until he realized that in order to be righteous by his own effort, he would have to carve out his sinful heart. But then finishing the same thought in a different letter, this time to the Galatians in chapter 2, he says that now it is no longer he who lives, but Christ who lives in him. His sinful heart has been torn out and cast aside. He died, but then was raised again. And now he is indwelt By Jesus and the Holy Spirit, a new creation reconciled to God and called righteous 
not on his account, but by the finished work of Christ forever. And so it is for you. You are, these verses attest, a deeper and more profound sinner than you can imagine, that you would ever be willing to admit down deep at your very core, not finally in your hand or in your eye, but in your heart. But you have a more majestic and profound Savior than you could ever hope for. Jesus Christ, who never looked at a woman with lust in his heart, who was only angry in perfect righteousness. Jesus, whose yes was always yes and was always faithful to a promise. This Jesus takes your sin onto himself in that great climactic moment on the cross and gives his perfect righteousness to you. This is the gospel. This is good news for sinners. Because in Jesus, you have a new heart. In him, you have a new life. In him, you are redeemed. In him, you are saved. Amen.